morning, church. My name is Stephen, and I'm here with your weekly announcements. First up, I want to give you an update on college ministry. Here at Antioch Dallas, we feel called to passionately invest in college students all throughout the Metroplex. Currently, we're reaching students at SMU, DBU, UTD, Baylor Nursing, and we are really excited that our new building is right next door to Richland College. Last week, we had World Mandate here on our own turf, and it was amazing. Uh, I had one of my college students tell me afterwards that he grew in his understanding that Jesus wants relationship with him and not to just give him a religion and rules. If you're here this morning and you're a college student, I'm so excited about what God is going to do in and through you here at Antioch Dallas as well as on your college campus. We have life groups meeting all throughout the week, so we really want you to get invested here and join one of our college groups. And also, what are you doing this spring break? March 10th through March 17th, we're headed with Antioch College Station to Baton Rouge, Louisiana for Revive 2017. Every spring break as a community, we jump out for one week uh, to get connected to Jesus and to love and serve people. And we want you to be involved. If you'd like to hear more about the trip, please visit antiochcollegeministry.org revive. Or you can catch me on site. How about that? like a YouTube video. Second, we sent out 2016 donor statements last week in the mail. If you haven't received yours yet, your address might have changed, so please let us know at hello at antiochdallas.org if that hasn't come in yet. If you're looking to give financially to the church, you can use the giving box that's located in the back of the room or our online secure giving portal at antiochdallas.org or you can mail in a check to the church. Can you believe it's already February? We got the Super Bowl tonight, Valentine's coming up, Joe Pa's baby is about to be born. It's crazy. This month, we're gonna post a lot of resources on our blog about relationships. So whether you're single, you're married, or you're dating, uh, please check out antiochdallas.org slash blog for more resources on relationships. We'll be releasing a four-part series on communication in marriage that you won't wanna miss. Okay, guys, that's it for this week's announcements. We hope you enjoy today's message as we continue our series in 1 Peter, Grace for the Everyday Stuff of Life. Amen. If you open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, like Joe said in the video shared, we're going to be journeying through the latter parts of 1 Peter together over the next several weeks, this season of life in our church. We began this study by looking at the first part of 1 Peter uh, in the fall. And if you missed any of those, you can kind of go back on our website to refresh your memory, jog your memory, but Peter is writing to this early group of Christians, and you might be like, well, who is this Peter guy again? Remember, he's one of the original disciples, one of the originals that Jesus chose, and so now he is an older man, and he's writing about this grace that we have received in Jesus and the gospel, and he's sending it to, he's writing a letter to these early Christians who are trying to discover, like, man, who is Jesus? What has he done for us? And how do we work this out in our lives, right? First chapter and a half of the book are focused entirely on the grace that we've received. And now as we turn to the latter portion of the book, we start to see how that works out in the everyday stuff of life. The first area that Peter goes into is community, how to be a citizen. Then he talks about marriage. How does grace shape our marriages? How does it shape our work environments, even our bad work environments? So if you have a bad work environment, you want to make sure you, you dial in on those scriptures. They'll encourage you. How does grace shape our suffering? How does grace shape the way we steward the resources that we have? And so over the next season in our church, we're just going to be letting this shape us, inspire us, mold us, and grow us as a people. And we're going to start out today in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, 
so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. As we start to think and digest these scriptures, I want to ask you, did you have a favorite class in school or maybe a favorite teacher that you just, it made school fun. It made school like where you like to go and you like to, to learn. For me, one of those classes happened my freshman year of college. Uh, somehow, I don't even really know how I got into this class, but it was on political science and government and community. And I think I just, you know, you're filling out the orientation forms and you just check classes and somehow I was in it. And I remember it so well. I started out at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and I was in a dormitory that was 10 stories high, had no air conditioning, and you move in in August, and it is hot. And so I'm in my dorm room, sweating, trying to make a good impression at this new school, make my way in the world. And I remember this class you know, you kind of map out. You remember you map out where your classes are as the semester starts. I noticed this class is really far away. It's on the complete other side of the campus. I guess this was their part of like freshmen, just, you know, you're going to have to walk forever. I had to walk 45 minutes to get to this class. Yeah, that's serious. College guys, that's serious. You know, and so I would prepare. I'd leave early enough. I didn't want to be late as I'm starting, you know, class and I'd walk. I'd walk, and I'd walk, and it'd be hot, and I had my backpack on. I didn't really know what I was doing, and I got to class. It's the first day. You're trying to make a good impression. You know, I take my backpack off, and I realize 45 minutes in the heat with a backpack on your back, what do you got? You got a sweaty back. So I feel sorry for the person that sat behind me that semester. You know, every day I'd walk in, 45-minute walk, take the backpack off, and it'd just be sweat everywhere. Now contrast that with the professor for that class was Mr. kind of cool college professor. He was a graduate student, so as a as a freshman I thought that was really cool. He rode his bike around campus. He rode his bike everywhere you saw him. He was riding his bike. This was before hipsters were cool. He was like the original hipster, like riding his bike in. He never sweated. I don't know how that worked. I'm so sweaty. And he walks in, and it looked like he just came from like a modeling shoot at the Gap. And he just walks in, hops off his bike, you know, what's up class? And I was just like, man, this guy is cool, right? And in this class, we had all types of people. I remember so distinctly one uh, female. She was very intelligent. She was very outspoken. She was very politically and socially kind of on the ultra-liberal end. And I remember I would see her around campus like at lunchtime. And, you know, I'm just thinking about going to the cafeteria and getting a chicken sandwich. And I'm thinking about North Carolina has famous basketball players, so I'm like looking for them on campus. And I would see her all the time like leading these protests and these marches on campus and like, you know, being active politically. And here I am, my chicken sandwich, like looking for someone famous. I'm like, what am I doing in my life? Like this girl, sharp, you know. And she was outspoken. And then you contrasted her with, there was another guy in the class. I remember him very well. He was from rural North Carolina. He was in the ROTC. He was very on the ultra-conservative end. I think he might have listened to Rush Limbaugh like three hours a day before he came to class. And then you had everything in between. So just imagine this class. You've got cool professor, sweaty freshman, you know, ultra-liberal articulate, ultra-conservative articulate, and everything in between. And we're talking about government and community. And the way this class worked, it was not a lecture class. You, you read essays. You read the original writings of people like Aristotle, Thomas Jefferson, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Karl Marx, etc. You read that outside of class, and then you came to class, and class was discussion. 
right? So the, the, the cool professor would kind of open it up and ask questions. And some days it felt more like a talk show, like a Jerry Springer type talk show, because people were so passionate about this stuff and it was so controversial. You know, you'd be worried, like, is a desk going to fly over my head? And there I am, sweaty little freshman, like just looking around. But something, I just, I loved it. I, I was like, man, this is so cool. I, I like learning about this stuff and thinking about it and talking about it. And I realized how important community was. But I also realized, man, we are all from such different perspectives and life experiences and things that have shaped us. And you'd hear people share why they thought this was right and that was wrong. And they'd share, you know, kind of their personal experience. And you'd, I just remember being like overwhelmed at the challenge how do you bring such a diverse group of people together to create a community where, where people flourish, where, where, where people thrive? It was overwhelming. And I just thought it was very interesting that as we're working through First Peter, the topic for this week is on community and government, given all that's going on in our nation, specifically highlighted over the last 18 months, and the, the debates that are raging and, and the passions that are being expressed. And so when I saw this passage of scripture that this was kind of working through First Peter, this was what was up this week, I was like, ha ha, God, this is going to be kind of a spicy topic, if you will. Uh, not, not playing it safe with this one, but we're going to look at the Word of God and we're going to let it shape us and learn from, learn from it. And this is actually really going to help us because you may not know this, but Jesus is really into building community. Jesus is really into not just building any community, but he is working in our lives, not just as individuals, but Ephesians tells us that he's building a new humanity, that his plan to redeem the world is by building a new people, whom the Bible refers to as the church. The first place that you kind of see this in action is when Jesus comes, he, he, one of his kind of ministry focuses foci, I guess is the plural of focuses, is to call disciples. And he calls 12 individuals, known as the 12 disciples, uh, and I want to tell you about them. You probably heard that part, but I don't know if you've thought about who was in the group. So first person that we're going to focus on is a man named Matthew. Matthew, his profession was a tax collector. Now, in that day, the Roman government was all-powerful, all-ruling, and they were oppressing the Jewish people. Matthew worked for the Roman government. And the way the Jews looked at Matthew, they called him the enemy of God. Like, that was his nickname. You worked as a tax collector. You're an enemy of God because he was a swindler. He was a cheat. He worked for the bad guys, and he was part of the oppression that's him. So Jesus comes along and says, hey, Matthew, uh, yeah, you tax collector, you've been called enemy of God. Yeah, you're, you're on my team. I choose you. And then he goes to a man named Simon, who they call Simon the Zealot. Now, that word zealot was not because he was passionate or zealous, but it was because he was part of another particular political party. Now, it just so happens that that political party, their mission, they were known as the first terrorist group. And the people that they were against was the Roman government. They wanted the overthrow at any means necessary of the Roman government. That's Simon the Zealot. So Jesus has Matthew, who works for the Roman government, the pro-government guy sitting right here. And he says, oh, Simon, you who, who want to overthrow the government, you, you come and I want you to sit next, right next to Matthew. I just start to envision maybe what would have gone on. And their little interaction, right? Then who else does he choose? He chooses Judas Iscariot. Now, we are most knowing of Judas as the guy who stole the money in the end and sold Jesus out. But that word Iscariot, scholars tell us, is that he was part, uh, it wasn't his family last name, but he was part of another political party known as the Sicarii. And the Sicarii were a group similar to the Zealots who wanted to overthrow not just the Roman government, but any government. And they wanted to do it violently. In fact, they were trained assassins. They would carry knives around in their robes, ready to assassinate, ready to take out anyone they deemed a traitor. Okay, Judas, you know, you come and you, you sit on this side of Matthew. All right, just start imagining a dinner party with, like, these people. Okay, so who else does he get? 
He gets John and Andrew, whose nickname is the Son of Thunder. Now, I don't know about you, but how do you get a nickname, Son of Thunder? My guess is you're loud, you're outspoken, maybe you're angry, right, for someone to give you that nickname. So he pulls those two brothers, puts them right here, and then it gets Peter, the guy who's writing this letter that we're reading. And Peter, if you read through the Gospels, is like always talking. Like he is like dominating. If there's a microphone, he's grabbing it. I mean, he's getting his airtime. He is talking and he's just kind of saying whatever. You probably know someone like that. You might be someone like that. We love you, right? And so here's Peter. And you wonder why the rest of the disciples don't really get much mention in the Gospels. I just don't know if there was any room to get a word in edgewise, right? I mean, just imagine this group of people. You probably need like four quiet introverts to pair with them just to mellow it out a bit. You know what I mean? So you've got all these people together. I can't even imagine their dinner party, you know, discussions with that group. You know, Judas, put away your knives again. Uh, (laughs) Right? And so then Jesus says to them in the Gospel of John, he says, hey, guys, this is how the world is going to know that God sent me. This is how the world is going to know that I'm the real deal. This is how the world is going to know that I'm the Savior of the world is by the way that you love one another. The way that you serve one another, the way that you encourage one another, the way you honor one another, the way you give to one another. And as we sit here a couple thousand years later, you look at that group and you're like, oh, I can see why. If I was the next door neighbor and I saw the, the zealot and the tax collector, two sworn enemies hanging out together and not just neutrally coexisting, but loving one another, I would be like, what in the world? What is happening here? If you see the sons of thunder start to be transformed into men marked by love, you should be like, what are you guys drinking or smoking or like what's going on, right? Those are the questions you would be asking. You start to see, oh, wow, this is Jesus' plan. And as you read these epistles that we're reading, that we've been going through many of them, these letters to the early church, you realize this diversity of people and opinion and viewpoints wasn't limited to just the 12 disciples. In fact, we see the letters to the early church address the rich and the poor together. And we're not talking like a difference of income of like 100 bucks or 1,000 bucks. We're talking very rich, very poor, side by side, taking communion together, worshiping together, loving one another. We see a slave and master brought together in the same church. We see men and women, not the two groups known to get along the best, right? We have books, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, or the other way around, and yet they're brought together in the church. You see parents and children put together, again, another group that's been known to have some animosity, right, to have some different viewpoints on life, and all these people are together in the church. How did all these people come together? It's because they've seen something in Jesus There's something about him, about the way that he talks, the way he thinks, his presence, what he does, that's just captivated people of all different types of backgrounds, all different political leanings, all different income levels, all different ethnic levels, and just or ethnic groups, rather, and just brought together of, wow, Jesus, you're amazing, and you're awesome, and and we want to be with you, and we want to be shaped by you, and we want to do what you're doing and go where you're going, right? Ephesians tells us this is the new humanity that God is redeeming the world through. And so here, it's just appropriate that Peter, after laying out this feast of the grace of God in the first chapter and a half of 1 Peter, turns his attention to how does this grace that we've received, transform, shape, renew our relationships with one another and our communities? How is God building us into a new humanity? And I want to walk through that with you today. Verse 11, uh, we'll see how far we get in this. There's a lot here, so we'll just go as far as we can go in the time that we have. So Peter starts out, And he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war 
against your soul. So three words I want you to notice right here in the opening section of this scripture is number one, he calls them beloved. Let's hone in on that. Number two, he calls them sojourners. Number three, he calls them exiles. So beloved, Peter starts out reminding them and the Holy Spirit speaking through Peter reminds them that they are loved by God. We'll pause there. They are loved by God. Now, the idea of a biblical love, what they are loved by God, is not kind of a a warm kumbaya, we are the world, we are the children, just a, a general goodwill. No, this is a fierce love. This is a love that seeks you out when you're lost. This is a love that bursts, breaks you, gets you out of jail. This is a love that opens blind eyes, heals lame limbs, raises people from the dead, brings them to life, a love that doesn't just give a little but gives extravagantly. That's the type of love that these Christians are loved by from God. That's the love that you and I have received in Jesus. Do you know today that you are loved by God? It's my pleasure just to say it over you again and remind you again, you're loved by God. I was with a member of our church a couple weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago, and they said something so profound. They said, you know, I I know in my head that I'm loved by God, but sometimes I just need to hear it again. Thank you for saying it to me. And I just want to say it over you today. You are loved by God. So he starts there, and then he goes in, and he says, you're not only loved by God, but you're a sojourner and an exile. Now, what are these words? What does this mean? Again, he's speaking to their identity. He's speaking to who God has made them in the gospel, this new thing that God has done in them. They're sojourners and exiles. What's a sojourner? What's an exile? It's someone who's living in a land, but their home is not there. Their their primary allegiance and orientation and affections and the things that shape them are not there. It's it's somewhere somewhere else. When I was in college, I took this political science class. I was really interested in government, and I was interested in other cultures and countries. So I decided, man, I'm going to try and get a job with the State Department and work kind of an international job. And in kind of researching for that, um, I saw, and I can't verify this, but at least I found this as I was, as I was preparing. They said that uh, with a State Department job, they wouldn't keep you in another country longer than three years because they found at the three-year mark, your allegiances began to change. Your affections began to change. Your orientation began to change. You began to be shaped and defined not by your home country, but by the country you had residence in. And so at three-year mark, they would move people along to keep their allegiance fresh to their home country. So interesting to think about. What's Peter saying to these Christians? He's reminding them that though they may live under Roman rule, though they may live in a particular city, uh, they're not primarily defined by their job or lack thereof. They're not primarily defined by their political party on the left or the right or lack thereof. They're not primarily defined by what their family says about them, what their boss says about them, what culture tells them is the way to go. But their deepest orientation, their deepest value, their deepest sense of significance is who they are in Christ. That they're exiles here because their home is in Jesus. And that's the deepest, most lasting, shaping thing about them. He reminds them of that. And I want to remind you of that as well. You are a sojourner and an exile. Your home is in Christ. The deepest things about you is not what your boss says to you tomorrow morning or what letters are before or after your name, what degree you have, what income level you make or don't make. The deepest things about you are who you are in Christ, what God has made you in Jesus. And that's good news. And so he focuses them there. Those words have biblical significance as well. You see, those were the same words that were used to describe Abraham. 
Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Abraham is a key figure, a key person in the history of Scripture. He comes on the scene in the book of Genesis. So move from the back of the Bible where we are in 1 Peter to the front of the Bible, first book of the Bible, there's Abraham. And God pursues Abraham, and God chooses Abraham, and God calls Abraham, and God speaks over Abraham that I want to bless you. I want to make you a great nation, and through you, I'm going to bless every family on the earth. I'm going to redeem the world. And so Abraham was called a sojourner and an exile because his home was in this city, this new humanity that God was building That was the shaping thing about them. And now Peter is taking those words that were described to Abraham, and now he's saying it to this generation of Christians. That's true of you as well. You are called into that same story. You are a part of that same work that God is doing. Your life does not begin or end with yourself. You are involved in something much greater and much better than you could cook up on your own. You're standing alongside Abraham and Moses and Deborah and Joshua and Samuel and David and Esther and Daniel and so on and so forth and John the Baptist and all these figures that they would have read about and seen how God was using them to redeem the world. And now Peter is saying in the gospel, that's come to you, that God is at work in your lives and you have a calling, not because you're particularly smart or particularly influential or particularly have it all together, but just like Abraham, out of the grace of God, right? That's Peter's theme. He just keeps going back to the grace of God. That's what they were called to. This is what God is doing in them, and this is what God is doing in you today. You're a sojourner. You're in exile. You're part of God's bigger story of redeeming the world. That's pretty significant, guys. That's like me, little old me. Here in Dallas, wow, God's on the move, and he's on the move in your life. He's on the move in us as a people to be a part of his redeeming the world. So he goes from there, and then he says, in light of that, I want you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So on that foundation, here comes instruction. This new humanity, this new community that God is building is not built on the passions of our flesh. Now, what does that mean? What are we talking about here, right? Again, loaded biblical term that we don't have time to go into all of it right now, but let me give you some examples. One of the biblical examples of the passion of the flesh is pride, right? It's saying, my worth, my value, my life is built on what other people say about me. And if I can prove my dominance, if I can prove my excellence, if I can prove my worth, that's where real life is found. Right? Peter is saying, no, no, no. That's not the community that God is building here. Why? Because when we build our lives on pride, right, somebody wins and somebody loses. And we're talking about something much bigger than a Super Bowl. We're talking about someone is elevated and someone is crushed. That's how pride works. That's not the community that God is building. And I find so many of us are so tempted and inundated and drawn to build our lives on pride. I like Shark Tank. Anybody like Shark Tank? Got a few Shark Tank fans. It's an interesting show. They have investors. They have companies come on. They tell their story, and investors decide to invest money. One of the regulars on there, the investors, her name is Barbara Corcoran. She's a real estate mogul. She's maybe mid-60s. I'm not sure. Barbara, if you're listening to this, you know, let us know how old you are. Um, but they did like a profile on her of how does she get to where she is. She's a very successful, built a huge real estate company in New York City. And she describes her home and her upbringing. And she said in school she always felt dumb. So she made a resolution that she was going to prove to the world how smart she was. She said, my driving force in life, now she's an older woman, but what she spent her life on, all of her achievements are tied back to, man, I want the world to know that I'm smart enough. And I watched that, and I was like, wow, how many of us, just like Barbara, are just being so driven just to build our life, spend our time and our affection and our attention just trying to prove our worth to someone somewhere. And Peter's saying, hey, I don't want you to spend your, 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 
I don't want you to spend your energy on that. Why? How can he, how can he say that? Well, think of another class that uh, I, I liked was math. Now, you might be like, you like math class? I like math class. I, I wasn't good at it until 10th grade. In 10th grade, my parents said to me, hey, you're, you're not doing so hot in this class. Do you need a tutor? For some reason, that made me mad. I was like, no, I don't. I'm going to prove you wrong. And so I started trying to pay attention in math, and I started trying to learn how to do math. And I realized what had happened before is I'd only focused on the answer, right? They give you the math problem. I'm just trying to get to the answer. And I'm a messy handwriter by nature, and so I wouldn't really pay attention to how you got there. I would just focus on the answer, and I would get stuff wrong all the time. And so in trying to get better, I realized if I would take time to really line out the problem and to show my work and to take each step along the way, I could get to the right answer, and I could be good at this. And so I was like messy person trying to become neat, trying to just write neatly. I started paying attention to that. And as I learned and focused on showing my work, I found the power, the right answer. I, I, I found it was a lot easier to get to. It made sense. You can ask Brian Henning. Brian, that's probably a good math. Brian's a math teacher. It's probably a good, good math principal. So I started trying to do that. And I got good at math, right, through showing the work. Now, here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to focus on. If we miss this, we miss everything, okay? In my political science class, when we read Aristotle, Aristotle said community was built the best way was to put the wisest people to make a group of them. Don't put power in the hands of the masses. Put it in the few because they're the wisest. Therefore, his form of government, the way that we were to live, his showing the work was, well, not everybody's the same level of intelligent. So we just need to get the smartest people and put them in power, right? That was his show in the work. Thomas Jefferson, very different, said all men are created equal. But when you read into his life, it wasn't really all men. It was just a few men that were created equal. But that was kind of his, his, his gist, right? So put the power in the hands of everybody. That was his show in the work. Karl Marx, what did he say? He said, wow, the, the rich oppress the poor. So we need to have like a poor revolution and just throw off the rich, right? That was his show in the work to get to his form of government. So what we see in the gospel, the showing the work right here, where Peter is talking about this new humanity is not built on pride or greed or lust or any of these things that at the expense of one another is crushed. The showing the work part is not that we're just great people, but it traces back to the grace that we've received in Jesus. That you don't have to spend your life building up trying to prove to somebody that's not even there that you're smart. You don't have to build your life and prove to yourself or whoever, your parents or the world around you or the, you know, your next door neighbor or whatever that, that you have what it takes because you have a certain amount in the bank account. Their real life is found in that. You don't have to spend your life on sex and sexual experience and sexual expression thinking that's where real life is. Because what the gospel tells us is that real life is found in what we've received in Jesus, in him and what he's given us. And so we're valuable because he said we're valuable, not because you proved to someone you're smart enough. Your life matters not because of what's in your bank account, but because of him who gave it all for you. The real life is not found in sexual experience, but it's found in knowing him who loved you purely. That's the showing your work part. And now you can start to see the fruit of this work, of this new humanity, of this new community. There's power to actually live this out. Wow, Jesus, you're awesome, right? So he says, look, if you don't have to spend, I mean, think about how much emotional energy we spend every week trying to build a name for ourselves, trying to gratify the desires of the flesh. How much? How much of our time? How much of our energy? How much of our affection? How much of our resource? I mean, good night. It's incredible how much we spend. And Peter is saying, hey, when you realize what Jesus has done for you and you realize who he is, young Christians, wow, you just had a whole lot of resources freed up. You, what are you going to do with all this extra bandwidth you've got? Like when you go on your iPhone and it's like running slow and the battery's always dying down, and you go online and you find that tutorial that says clean off all your old apps and all the apps that are running in the background, and then your, your battery life will run. So you go on and you realize how many of your apps like are running in the background, they're draining. 
your energy and your power. And you go in there and you shut those things off. You got all this resource now. You got all this power in your hands. You've got something. Peter is saying, you can live that way, church. You can live that way. And then he goes on in the next verse. He says, well, now, what are you going to do with your free time? What are you going to do with all this bandwidth you just freed up, all this storage room on your hard drive that you just cleared off, all those, you know, memory-eating programs that you threw in the trash because now you're tapped into the gospel and not tapped into living and trying to build a life off the passions of the flesh? He says this. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now think about this. Though these Christians were called to be strangers, sojourners, and exiles, they weren't to live hold off from the world. They weren't to just kind of dig in a hole and just wait for the end. No, that they were to live open lives alongside Gentiles. What are Gentiles? In this sense, it means people who don't know Christ, who don't believe what they believe, who don't want to do what they want to do, who don't have that same vision for life. Peter is saying, hey, with this resource you've been given, you can live an open, transparent uh, life, knee to knee, table to table, shoulder to shoulder, neighbor to neighbor, with people who don't believe like you, don't think like you, don't even, it's not even a neutral thing, right? He says, they're going to criticize you. They're going to speak evil against you. They're going to call you an evildoer, like people who are against you. And you know these Roman Christians that are reading this, right, their emperor is about to use them as human torches to light dinner parties, like light them on fire, and that was their version of a tiki torch, okay? So, I mean, we're not talking, oh, someone unfriended me on Facebook. We're talking about, wow. And he's saying, you now have the resource to live open lives amongst them. And then what he says, not just live there, but live the type of life where they see your good deeds, and though they look at you as an evildoer, there is something where they see, wow, I'm going to praise God because of the way this person or this person lived their life or this community, this church lived together. He said, that's what you, you're free to dream. You're free to spend your energy and your affection dreaming and implementing and pursuing living that type of good work lifestyle. And though you may be criticized as an evildoer, and these Christians were going to be, and you will too, right? I just want to let you know, following Jesus, you will be criticized. You will be called an evildoer. Like, that's just the way it is. It's par for the course, right? Jesus was that, so we can't escape that either. But we're to be about such good works. They were to be about such good works that people would stop and worship those who criticize would say, wow, God is amazing. And if you know anything about these Roman Christians, you know that though they're lit like tiki torches to light parties, thrown in the lion's den, uh, mocked, martyred, etc., you know that when a plague sweeps through Rome, they're the ones that ran to the sick. They're the ones that ran to the dying. They're the ones that gave their lives to care for the sick. And the Roman Empire saw what is, who are these people? Who does that? And they started to praise God. And that's how Christianity began to spread in the Roman Empire. I want to close us with this. We're not going to be able to get to any more, although I would love to. I want to close us with, with a story I saw this week of someone living like this. And I want to put this out there. And I want to invite you to dream with me of what might God do in our community us, if we were to give ourselves like this, like, like, like these scriptures talk about. Here's one example of what God has done. If you'll play that video. We end this week with a lesson in forgiveness from Steve Hartman on the road. It all went down on this block in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Back in 05, Jamel McGee says he was minding his own business when a police officer accused him of and arrested him for dealing drugs. You saying the officer made it up? Yeah, it was all made up. Of course, a lot of accused men make that claim, but not many arresting officers agree. So you phonied the report? I did. I, I falsified the report. This is former Benton Harbor police officer Andrew Collins. Were you just trying to chalk up an arrest? 
Well, basically, the start of that day, I was going to make sure I had another drug arrest. And in the end, you put an innocent guy in jail. Correct. Yeah. You lost everything. I lost everything. My only goal was to seek him when I got home and to hurt him. Really? That was my goal. Eventually, that crooked cop was caught, served a year and a half for falsifying many police reports, planting drugs and stealing. Of course, Jamal was exonerated, but he still spent four years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Today, both men are back here in Benton Harbor, which is a small town, maybe a little too small. Hey guys, thank you. Last year, by sheer coincidence, they both ended up at Mosaic, a faith-based employment agency where they now work side by side in the same cafe. Oh, excuse me. And it was in these cramped quarters that the bad cop and the wrongfully accused had no choice but to have it out. And I said, honestly, I have no explanation. All I can do is say I'm sorry. And Jamel says that was all it took. That was pretty much what I needed to hear. Today, they're not only cordial. Saturday, we went to the trampoline park. They're friends. Uh, you know, we talk about life. Such close friends. Not long ago, Jamel actually told Andrew he loved him. And I just started weeping because he doesn't owe me that. Uh, he, I don't deserve that, you know? Did you forgive for his sake or for yours? No, for our sake. Not just us, for our sake. Jamel went on to tell me about his Christian faith and his hope for a kinder <laughs> mankind. He wants to be an example. So now he and Andrew give speeches together about the importance of forgiveness and redemption. Grab this one, set it over there. And clearly, if these two guys from the coffee shop can set aside their bitter grounds, what's our excuse? Steve Hartman, on the road, in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Wow. Yeah, you can clap. I mean, that's like amazing. Right? And you heard, you heard the show your work part. It's Christian faith. It's, you know, he's been forgiven so he can extend forgiveness. And I just want us to take, we're going to take time to respond, but I want us to let the Holy Spirit speak to us. You might not have a, a crooked cop that put you in jail. Maybe some of you do. I don't know. But I imagine there are a thousand situations in this room that the Holy Spirit would want to take these words given to these early Christians and blow them afresh in our hearts. And what good works might he work through us as individuals and as a community that would leave a world, wow, God is good, right? So if we can get the, the, the crew to come on up, I'm going to pray, and we're going to have the scriptures up. We're going to spend about five minutes just reflecting on them and letting God speak to us about how he would call us to receive these and be shaped by these and walk these out. Jesus, thank you that you're awesome. Thank you that you're generous. Thank you that you're kind. Thank you that you're honorable. Thank you that you love us like crazy, Lord. Thank you that your ways are good and you build community that causes people to flourish. Thank you that you've made us uh, beloved. You've made us sojourners. You've made us exiles, Lord that we don't have to spend our lives trying to build a name for ourselves, but we can receive the name you've given us and spend ourselves, Lord, on good works that would allow others to see how awesome you are. And I pray that you would breathe afresh on us, that Holy Spirit, you would speak to us from these words and shape us and move us as a community to live these out faithfully in our generation, Lord.
Great.